0: All right, this morning, brothers and sisters, we come to the conclusion of this most extraordinary prayer of our Lord found in John 17. We've kind of traced as we've gone through this three movements. Now, that's just, I think, the easiest way for us uh, to make sense of what is before us. I'm sure there are other ways that you could categorize this prayer and trace what Jesus is doing around it, but in the first part of the prayer, we saw Jesus pray that he would be glorified. But it wasn't merely for himself that he would be glorified, but instead it was so that he could glorify his Father by giving eternal life to the people whom the Father had given to him. And then after that, in the section that we considered last week, we saw how Jesus moved to pray especially for the apostles. He is leaving them and he is entrusting to them with authority the mission that had been given to him and now a mission that is being entrusted to them. The tension that is there is that they are remaining in the world. They're sent into the world, they're remaining in the world, and so he prays, as I just prayed for us, for both their protection and their consecration. Their protection while they are in the world, their consecration as those who have been sent into the world with this mission. And now in this final movement. Jesus extends the prayer in anticipation of and confidence in the fact that the prayers that he has just prayed, that the message would go out through the apostles unto the world, that that eternal life would be given to those whom the Father has given him. He's prayed those, and now in anticipation of that, those prayers being answered, he prays for those who would believe based on what they heard from those men, which is to say that Jesus prays for us, which is to say that Jesus prays for you. Hear, then, the word of God. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Lord Jesus, thank you for this prayer. Hear us now. Be with us now. Send your spirit and allow us to delight in these words and in the way that you care for your people. Guide us along, we ask in your name. Amen. This prayer is symphonic, I have described it over the course of the weeks and then again in the introduction here this morning as a series of movements, and I think that fits well with the feel of the prayer, with the content of the prayer. There are themes that undergird the whole, and there are themes that are present in the very beginning of the prayer, and then they kind of move along and they come back strong at the end of the prayer. There are harmonies throughout. There's a dissonance that exists within the prayer, particularly in the last section that we looked at last week. The The dissonance and the discord, the dance that we need to do in this world as people who are, in one sense from the world, but no longer of the world, having been chosen out of the world by God himself, given to the Son, and yet now sent into this world. So sent and commissioned to be in the world, but a people who are not of the world. And then there is the resolution that comes here in this final section that I just read for us. As a symphony... It brings together all kinds of diverse sounds and people and instruments and parts. And so it makes sense that Jesus, through whom, by whom, and for whom, all things were created, that as he prays, he's looking at all things and bringing them together in this prayer before his father. He loops in all things. He goes from the beginning of the prayer to the glories of eternity past, right? That was, that's verse 5. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is praying and he's looking as he's praying into eternity past. And he comes back to that at the end of the prayer in this passage as well, where he says, To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me from before the foundation of the world. So he leaps loops in eternity past, but then he comes in and the prayer is very specific. It's a prayer in light of what is about to take place with him the crucifixion and then the resurrection. And then what is going to take place with the disciples as well as they are left in this world, as he is removed from the world, the heat shield, then exposing them to what they will face to the hostility of the world. He prays that the purposes of God would be accomplished, and then in so doing, he doesn't merely stop with the present purposes of God or with the eternal glories of the past, but he looks into the future as well and he prays for people who haven't been born yet. He prays for us, he prays for his people with the anticipation of a glorious, shared, eternal future. Well said by J.C. Ryle. It is a prayer full of, of sweet and unspeakable comfort. Ryle continues with this. The true servant of Christ ought to lean back his soul on the truth before us and take comfort in it. Lean back your soul. It's hard to lean back on the pews that you're sitting on right now. They're rather upright, stiff, uncomfortable things. But on this prayer, you can take your soul and let it lean on back. And so that's what I invite us to this morning. As we look at the last section, but of course, in looking at the last section, remember the whole of the prayer as well. Enjoy the conclusion, revel in the conclusion of this symphony, lean back your soul. The first thing that I would like to note for us this morning is a simple fact Uh, as we look at the prayer as a whole, and I haven't mentioned it yet, uh, but we might be tempted to overlook it, Uh, but I think it's worth noting simply this, Jesus prays. Jesus prays. On the one hand, that's of course rather obvious, not only from the passage that we've been looking at now for the third week, but from plenty of other passages in the gospel as well. But I think, as I said, it's worth noting in this longest prayer of our Lord, at least the longest prayer that we have preserved for us. Now, I suspect that all of us have questions about prayer that we don't bring up in pleasant company. I know some of you do because you've asked me questions about prayer, and I think this is true For all of us. Why do we pray? What's the interaction between our prayers and the perfect sovereign will of God Almighty? Why do many prayers for what seem to us to be good things, why do so many prayers go apparently, seemingly unanswered? or or at least not answered in a way that we think this is clearly the good thing, that I should pray for this, that this is according to the will of God. And when a prayer appears to be answered positively, was it my prayer? Was it somebody else's prayer? Was it a combination of prayers Or was it just God's will all along that this particular thing would work out in this way? Prayer has intricacies that are tough for us to unpack in full. And prayer is difficult. It's not easy. And many of us struggle to pray. But here we see a simple thing. And the simple thing is that Jesus prays and his disciples got to hear it, wrote it down, so that we could hear it as well. So that we could watch and listen to Jesus praying. Did Jesus need to pray these things? Did he need to pray that? Would not he himself be central in the accomplishment of the very things for which he is praying? Does his glorification and the giving of eternal life depend on this prayer? Is he not completely sure that his Father will do these things, exactly these things? After all, this has been the plan since before the creation of the world, and the Son of God knows full well it's been the plan because the Son of God, Jesus, was part of making the plan. Now, I don't know the answers. I don't know the answers to the questions that I just brought up. But what I do know is this. Jesus Christ, our Lord, prayed. He prayed. He prayed that these things would take place. And just first thing we're just noting, so should we. So should we. If he did, in this way... We should pray as well. And remember the simple idea that it is more important to pray than it is to understand all of the mysteries of prayer. So that's just a little thing, but it's looking at this thing as a whole that I didn't want to overlook. The second thing that I would like to note is that Jesus prayed not only for himself, not only for the glory of his Father... He prayed not only for the disciples, but, of course, he prayed for us. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. There are not words to describe, I think, how precious it is that Jesus prayed for us. If we knew nothing about the content, the substance of the prayer, surely it would still be to us unspeakably sweet to know that Jesus prays for us. Now all of us know, or at least I hope all of us in this room know and appreciate how comforting and encouraging it is to have someone say to us I am praying for you and to mean it it's comforting encouraging because we need the prayers themselves and it's comforting encouraging because it says a lot to us when someone is actually praying for us a brother and sister who cares enough to take you And your name and your cares and your concerns in their mind, into their heart, onto their lips and unto the Lord on our behalf. That's balm to our soul. right? That's balm to our soul to know that our brothers and sisters in Christ care enough about us to spend time praying for us. What then if Jesus does that? What then if Jesus says to you, I am praying for you? Last week we looked, even briefly, and it'll be just briefly this week as well, at the statement that Jesus makes to Peter. In light of the desire of Satan to sift Peter like wheat, wheat, Jesus says, I have prayed for you. I've prayed for you. And now all of the apostles, all of the disciples know Jesus has prayed for them. I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. For the sake of asking the question, can we even imagine that the Father, that the Heavenly Father, that the Eternal Father would not hear and heed The prayer of the Son, the eternal Son, the now incarnate Son, the Son with whom he has always had love and with whom he is well pleased, the Son whom he loves, can you conceive, just for a moment, can you conceive of the Father saying to the Son, no, no, (laughs) Of course not. Of course you can't conceive of it. None of us can conceive of the Father Almighty saying no to the Son incarnate for a request that the Son incarnate has made. And so, what kind of assurance ought it be to us? And there's more, if it is possible. It's not just that Jesus... Prayed for us this one particular time. The writer of Hebrews visits this idea and he's thinking of the earthly priests, the ministry of the Old Testament. And he says there was one obvious problem with the earthly priests, and that was that their intercession on behalf of the people had a terminus to it. The terminus to the intercession of the priests in the Old Covenant was they died. They died, and so there was a limit to the intercession that they could make, to the prayer that they could make, to the work that they could do of representing the people to God, of of mediating between the people and God. But Jesus, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus didn't just pray for us this one time, as precious as it is. He continues. He continues to intercede with his Father on your behalf. On our behalf. But here, in these moments, before his death, we're on His heart, and his mind, and his lips, and now he is alive forever, always living to intercede for us. Lean back your soul into that. So one, he prays. Two, he prays for us. And then we want to look at the content here of this. What is Jesus praying for, for us, with absolutely no Illusions as we consider this content, that we will be able to plumb the depths of what is set before us this morning. You know the line in, uh, and can it be, in vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Can't get to the bottom of that love. In vain would this pastor try to sound the depths of the union and the glory that is described in this prayer of our Lord in front of us. The symphony here is reaching its crescendo. And so many instruments are playing at this point that it's hard to pick them out individually. But we'll try just to see it a little bit uh, by the way, for those of you who love music, and I am just an amateur and I love a few pieces of music, if you want to listen to some music that have been in my mind uh, completely throughout this week reflecting on this, uh, the Dvorak uh, the, uh, from the New World Symphony, Symphony No. 9, and Beethoven's 9. Both of them were praying, playing rather loudly uh, in our house this morning uh, to the, the, the frightening of the dog, but nevertheless. They were great. But you can think about those. But, uh, but Google News thinks that I also love classic rock, which Google News is right about, because Google News listens to me listening. And, uh, and so periodically what they'll do is they'll flash up a news story for me that is, uh, that is a, a classic rock song but it takes out just one part, either the bass or the drums or the lead guitar, so that you can just kind of listen to that part because when it's all together it's hard to listen to one part. Now I know you musicians can appreciate one part more than we non-musicians can, but I enjoy doing that. I enjoy listening just to the one part and to hear what it's like and to go, wow, there's a lot else going on when these things all come together. So, so with no illusions that we'll be able to do this perfectly, let's, let's just try and look at the two things that I said here that are impossible to plumb the depths of for which Jesus is praying, namely, two things, union and glory. Okay, those are the two themes that are in this section for us. Now, we'll put glory aside for a moment, and let's talk about the union for which Jesus is praying, what we can call oneness because of the way that it is uh, described for us by our Lord here Now, what I want to explain to us is not the order in which it is presented to us in the text, but the priority through which Jesus is thinking and praying as he makes this prayer request for oneness. First of all, then, it begins with, it is grounded upon the union, the unity of the Trinity. So, oneness is grounded in the Trinity. Now, I know, uh, you know, obviously, that the Spirit of God is not mentioned here in particular. Just remember that we spent the last three chapters talking about the Spirit of God. The emphasis here is on the Father and of the Son. But John 14 through 16, we saw all about the Spirit of God. But listen to the union of the Trinity, which is the base point for Jesus. Verse 21, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Verse 22, of the Father and the Son, we are one. Verse 23, you in me. Jesus uses that as the groundwork for what he is praying here. Uh, At the beginning of the pandemic, it was either March or April of last year, in the days when I was preaching from my office at home, I know I used an example with respect to the power lines that I could see uh, outside of my windows. They are ACSR, aluminum conductor, uh, steel reinforced cables, the big ones that run through the big uh, power, uh, the the big poles uh, out there. And the idea that I wanted to get across then and the idea that comes back to us now in this last part of the prayer is that everything that Jesus has said from 13 here through the end of 17, has the steel reinforcement. So the idea of the uh, ACSR cables, are you, you have steel cables in the middle, and then around that steel cable, the aluminum wires are there for conductivity. But everything that Jesus is saying has as the central reinforcing strength in it a strand of three cords that is impossible to break. The Father, the Son... And the Holy Spirit are at the core of all of these things. For all eternity there has been and there will be union and love among the members of the Trinity. They are distinct. You can identify the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and they are one. Jesus is grounding his prayer on this. So the unity is there. And then what characterizes that unity is love. So verse 23, Jesus says, you loved me. Verse 24, Jesus says, because you loved me from before the foundation of the world. Verse 26 says, the love with which you loved me. This is the groundwork that Jesus is laying, or the pinnacle, however you want to think of it. The groundwork is the unity of the Trinity and the love that exists within the Trinity. And so, brothers and sisters, I have said this before, and it needs to be said again. We are not here this morning in the first place because we love God, because we want to have our kids have a good moral upbringing, or we want to have a nation that has a firm moral or spiritual foundation to it. We are not here in the first place because we love God. Secondly, we are not here in the first place because God loves us. It's true, but we're not here in the first place because of that. We are here in the first place because of Trinitarian love, because of the love that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is the foundation on which everything else is built. And the next step, as Jesus is praying, is that we are brought into that family. We are brought into that unity and the love of that family. Verse 21, the prayer of Jesus, that they may be in us, that they, the people who believe, may be in us, the Father and Son. Verse 23, I in them. And verse 26. the symphony concludes on that same note I in them that's what Jesus is praying for that he would be in us Christ in you is the final prayer that comes out of his mouth before heading to be arrested oneness is extended to us not sameness Sameness is not extended to us. No one wants all of the instruments in the orchestra to sound the same or to play the same note. That would be boring. But unity and harmony and oneness. And if that weren't enough, if it weren't enough that we would be brought into the union that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there is more, if indescribable. Because... The love of the Trinity is also shared with us. I I tried to read it this way for emphasis, but look at verse 23 and consider what it says. That you loved them, that's you and me, that you love them even as you love me. pause for just a second there because what he's saying is that God the Father loves us as much as he loves his only begotten son D.A. Carson writes it this way the thought is breathtakingly extravagant who can conceive of that Who who can put that... Who could say that except for Jesus? Verse 26 continues. That the love with which you loved me may be in them. Wait. The love with which the Father loved the Son, that that love would be in us? I mean, some love is okay. Parts of love, okay. But that love, the love that the Father had from the Son, that that would be in in us? Oh, Lord... Enlarge our hearts. Enlarge our hearts that that love would fit inside of us. And then there's the specific and final request that derives from this, namely that we would be one. So let me do it from the ground up here. Okay, so that, that, we, that we would be one is where the prayer starts, right? It's mentioned three times, verses 21, 22, and 23. Here's what Jesus is working on. The eternal unity of the Trinity and the love that exists there. And then that unity extended to the people whom the Father has given to the Son and love within that. And now we're going one level up and Jesus is saying, I pray that they might be one. That this unity and this unity would be here and expressed in a unity between them and in a love between them. In verse 11, earlier in the chapter, he prayed this same thing for the apostles themselves. He said, uh, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. He prayed it for the apostles themselves, and now he is praying it for the apostolic church, that we might be one. And the purpose... It all—it's not all an end in and of itself, because the purpose of that union, that love, that unity for which the oneness for which He is praying is that the world may know that you sent me, verse twenty-three; that the world may believe that you sent me, verse twenty-one. In the passage, the the mission—the mission—it's mission critical our union, and our expression of that, right? This is kind of where this whole thought began. It began back in John chapter 13, right? By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It started back there, and now it's come full circle to this point right here. Unity and oneness, as wonderful as they are for us, are not only for us, but they're for a world and unto a world that needs to know. Okay. That's the unity part, the union part. Now we've got to bring back the glory because Jesus brings back the glory. It's the theme where we started. It's the theme where we come to in the end of this prayer. Verse 22, Jesus says, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them. We said several weeks ago that Jesus is no hoarder of glory. Jesus is, in fact, a sharer of glory. And here he refers to the present manifestation of that glory which he has received already and he has given. Now there's glory from the beginning of this prayer, glory for which he is praying, but now he's talking about a glory that he has already given. What is the glory that he has already given? Well, it's the glory of a life lived in obedience to the will of God to a life that has been lived in servitude, in humility, and is going to be capped off in giving his life for those whom he loves. There's a glory in that, a glory in the very cross of Christ. And we taste of it now. We taste of it in love, joy, peace, and hope. Those are parts of glory that we partake of, that we taste of now. On the front of your bulletin, the verse from 2 Corinthians 4 is quoted there. We've seen it. We've tasted that. That is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what Jesus has given. The Westminster Larger Catechism talks about it as a communion in glory in this life. So Jesus is saying, I've given them glory. I've given it to them. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with the glory that he has given to this point. There's more. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Now, just in the context, I know this has been a year ago... That's where we started in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. You can't go there now. I'm going to come back and take you to this place. Jesus is praying exactly what he said he would do. He made the promise, and now he's he's pleading it with the Father. Father, I desire that they be with me in that place. Why? To see my glory that you have given me because you love me from before the foundation of the world. We've tasted of glory right now. We've experienced a communion and glory in this life right now. And what Jesus is saying is, uh, there's more to come. There's lots more to come, to behold, to see, to experience, to be part of in that glory. We will be glorified. John reflects on it in 1 John, verse again on the front of your bulletin, 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. How will we be? Glorious. How will he be when we see him? Glorious. In every sense of the term, in every way that we can imagine, in fact, far beyond whatever we can think or imagine about the glory of God, so will be the vision of Christ that is set before us, so will be us as we behold it. Paul calls it the glory that is to be revealed to us. And thus this symphony concludes with all of the instruments, and all of the voices shouting together in acclaim and rejoicing together. The symphonic prayer comes to its conclusion. Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed for you. Jesus prayed for us, for all who would believe that we would be united in him and in one another, tasting of glory now and prepared for a glory to come. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what the prayer is before us today. So, lean back your soul. Lean back your soul into that. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I invite you now to pray aloud with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power